Good morning. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We'll start reading in verse 17 in just a couple moments here. Mark chapter 10. I don't know about you, but fall is one of my favorite seasons. I love fall. I love the cold, crisp air and the leaves changing and fire pits and apple cider and pumpkin spice, everything, and especially college football. You know, our team's our teams, I can say that. Our teams did fairly well yesterday. As we're considering college football, I want you to think about what college football players do in the off-season. You know, the players, of course, are preparing. They're preparing by putting themselves under the guidance, of course, of coaches through a rigorous regimen of training. So there's nutrition guidelines and cardio training and weight training and mental training and, of course, field training. And it's really intense stuff. Now, let me ask you this question. Is there any chance we could motivate any of these college football players to endure all of that all summer long if they didn't know what the prize was? You take away the conference championships and the rivalry games and the college football playoffs and the four and five star players to woo and, you know, the recruits to woo. Hey, we're just going to kind of do this just, just for the pure love of the game. No way any of them would sign up for that, right? I think becoming a Christian and staying a Christian is very similar There is a cost associated with following Jesus. And you need to know the prize in order to pay the cost. That is what today's passage is about. Let's read now. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. Hear God's word. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. He said to him, teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go. Sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished, saying to one another, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Peter began to tell him, look, we have left everything and followed you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said, there is no one 
who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, who will not receive a hundred times more, now at this time, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Here's the main point of this passage, I trust, and of the sermon. Jesus is the priceless treasure worth forsaking all to gain. Jesus is the priceless treasure worth forsaking all to gain. Friends, we need to know the price, excuse me, the prize. We need to know the prize in order to pay the cost. I want to point out two movements in this passage. First is the cost of discipleship. That's the first point, the cost of discipleship. We see that in verses 17 through 22. And then then we're going to look at the prize of discipleship, verses 23 through 31. First the cost, verses 17 through 22. Then the prize, verses 23 through 31. And I want to invite you uh, to open up your bulletins. I do this sometimes just to kind of uh, help, especially new folks in our midst. So you'll see in the bulletin, the main point already written down, you'll see some place, uh, a place for notes. You'll see on the right side at the bottom, some works cited. So, you know, I've looked into uh, some scholars and their teaching. So whether it's Kent Hughes or Jason Meyer or Sinclair Ferguson, I, I want to give credit where it's due, but then also point you to those scholars so you can read up on more. So check out the bulletin. You'll also see at the bottom of that uh, notes section next week's passage. And so I'd encourage you to read that passage ahead of Sunday morning. Okay, so two movements. The first is the cost of discipleship, the cost of discipleship. So I want you to notice Jesus has just been speaking about receiving the kingdom, as we talked about last week, like a child. You need to be childlike. You need to come with empty hands. You need to come humbly in order to get into the kingdom of God. And while these words were still clearly embedded in the, Jesus, in the disciples' memories, this incident, this story before us, occurs. And here we have a rich young man who is the very opposite of a helpless, dependent child. This man was affluent. He was powerful. He was an achiever. And notice how he approaches Jesus. He runs up, he kneels down, he asks him this question. He doesn't just kind of stroll up. He came dashing. He throws himself on the ground, probably out of respect. He was probably out of breath when he asked the question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it seems like a good question. He has the right goal. He just doesn't know how to get there. Now, surely this is a great opportunity for Jesus to establish a bridgehead in the community. Hey, let's make this powerful guy one of Jesus' disciples. That would be a strategic move. But Jesus never pursues slick and easy methods of evangelism, does he? His initial answer sounds kind of strange. Look at verses 18 and following. And the disciples were probably disappointed. I mean, come on, Jesus, you've got the perfect evangelistic opportunity Don't mess it up by talking about theology. Now, why didn't Jesus throw a tract at him or encourage him to pray the sinner's prayer or point him down some aisle? Well, Jesus was concerned. You're right. Jesus was concerned with this man's heart. He's not just interested in verbal decisions. He's interested in lifelong disciples. 
Did you notice the rich young ruler's question? He wanted to know what he could do to attain eternal life. This achiever wanted to achieve for Jesus. Over the course of his life, whatever he touched likely turned to gold. From his perspective, he certainly had the ability and the will to do whatever would be required, just as he always did. So, Jesus, what do we need to do? And we ask this sort of question of Jesus too sometimes, don't we? So often we focus on what we can do for Jesus. We forget to focus our energy first on what he has done or can do for us. Jesus is going to take us there in the coming verses. I want you to notice Jesus' initial response. It's kind of like a splash of cold water on this man's face, but, but it wasn't intended to dampen his enthusiasm, but rather to wake him, up, wake him up to spiritual realities. Calling anyone good teacher was extravagant language in the first century. Just plain old teacher or rabbi or master, that's fine. But good teacher, this is unusual. It was weird. Jesus is attacking the man's shallow use of the word to get him to think about what he's saying because Jesus knows his heart. He's basically saying, don't you know that calling me good is calling me God? You really don't know who I am, do you? He doesn't have, the rich young ruler, doesn't have a right knowledge of God, but also of himself. After the splash of cold water, Jesus answers the question. He essentially says, hey, obey these commandments. This is a good answer because the Old Testament teaches that those who keep the law, this is Deuteronomy chapter 30, those who keep the law will live. So there's kind of this external sense in which this can be true. This is why the apostle Paul in Philippians 3 says about himself, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. And like Paul, the rich young ruler also had this kind of superficial understanding. This is, by the way, the Apostle Paul before he became a Christian. And this rich young ruler shares kind of the same perspective before Paul was a Christian. After all, he had not murdered or committed adultery or stolen. And so he's saying, hey, Rabbi, since my bar mitzvah, since I became an adult, I've essentially kept all the commandments. I'm good to go, right? His self-assurance at this point must have served. I passed Jesus' test. I'm all right. But the problem with this man's thinking is that God's commands are not a ladder, but a mirror. They're not a ladder we use to climb up to God with our obedience. They're actually a mirror to show us that there is no good except God alone. In fact, notice, friends, Jesus adds, do not defraud in the list of commands. This is outside the, the Ten Commandments. The rest of these are Ten Commandments. Now, why is he saying this? Well, it's probably because Jesus is calling into question how this man became rich. Could it be that his wealth came from defrauding the poor? So he was so self-assured, but he didn't actually have reason to be. Just like all of his Jewish brethren and really all of humanity he was sinful. He was in need of a savior, but he was blind to what he was really like inside. What happens next is really astonishing in the story. Here's a man who lacked a right knowledge of God, a right knowledge of self. He was misinformed. He was self-righteous. Yet we must take into account the way in which he came to Jesus. Do you see that? He was earnest. He was sincere. He was religious. He was dedicated this is why it says in verse 21, you see verse 21, it says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. 
He's about to take out a heart surgeon's knife and cut him. But Jesus loves him. Let's not forget that. What he says or what he's about to say is out of love. He doesn't miss this man's earnestness. And I just find this encouraging. He doesn't miss our earnestness either, even when we've missed the mark. There was something missing with this man, and that one thing amounted to everything. His life was still centered on himself instead of on Jesus and God's kingdom. And so Jesus has to address that, yes. But I want you to notice how Jesus works with this man's immature faith. And so he takes out his surgeon's scalpel, and Jesus expertly and unexpectedly exposes the man's need. Look at verse 21. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. I wonder whether you've ever been in a conversation where you think you know what's happening, and then the other person says one sentence or asks one question, and it just leaves you completely undone and exposed. In two sentences, Jesus does exactly this. Jesus is like, hey, you've kept all the commandments, huh? Well, let's uh, start with the first one, which, by the way, I didn't mention before. You shall have no other gods before me. You see, Jesus knew, he knew despite the man's apparent piety and earnestness that materialism had occupied the place of God in his life. He essentially was living each day in breach of the first commandment. Money was his God. Money prevented the childlike dependence that Jesus had just said was necessary for entering the kingdom. So Jesus puts this all to the test. He says, hey, are you going to do this? Are you going to leave your stuff? Are you going to come follow me? Who knows? Maybe today will be the day the rich young ruler gets it, and he changes, and he kills this idol. What if the young man's money was all gone and everything that comes with it, respect and admiration and mansions and servants and the freedom to do whatever he wants? Will he give it all up to follow Jesus? Look with me at verse 22. But he, the rich young ruler, was dismayed by this demand. And he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Money was his God, and money would remain his God. And so for this instance, we get to see the pathology of idolatry. The idol of this man's heart ensnares him and traps him. This man can't let go of his money, his stuff. And so the alarm goes off in his heart as Jesus is kind of, you know, exposing this particular idol, but he can't let go of what he loves most. He loves his idol more than he loves Jesus. That's what we see here. His possessions have essentially taken possession of his heart. Now, for you and for me, it may not be money or our things, but it's something. Amy Carmichael was an incredible Irish missionary in India in the early 20th century. She opened up an orphanage. She founded a mission in Donavur, served for 55 years in India at this orphanage. She wrote 35 books about her work. By the way, I would encourage you to pick up Elizabeth Elliot's biography about Amy Carmichael. It's phenomenal. And one time she, Amy, was sitting with a Hindu queen in her palace as the queen 
started to reveal her own spiritual hunger. She kept asking Amy about what was necessary for salvation, and Amy was trying to be gentle and careful, so she, she didn't kind of dive in, but the queen was persistent. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That was essentially her question, and Amy says to her, you must believe and repent and follow Jesus, and she starts reading to this queen scripture after scripture after scripture. And at once, the queen's face became sorrowful. And she said to Amy, so far must I follow? So far? And Amy nodded. And she says, I cannot follow so far. That's basically what the rich young man is saying, isn't he? I cannot follow you, Jesus, so far. And we shouldn't universalize this truth, saying that every disciple of Jesus must give up their wealth in the same way. Jesus isn't condemning wealth. He's condemning idolatry. That's this guy's issue, his heart issue. He won't let go to gain Jesus. Friends, if you want to inherit eternal life, there is a cost. There is a cost of following Jesus. You must give up your life to gain Jesus. Jesus requires total allegiance, not total perfection, just to be clear, but total allegiance. Isn't this precisely what repent and believe means? To break ties with your former lives and your idols and all the things you rely on for safety and security, and then to put your faith in Jesus, your new master, alone. You know, we too often sanitize this story and other stories like it because it feels so demanding. But isn't that exactly what the rich young ruler says at the end here? But he was dismayed by this demand. Jesus, you are too demanding. And we sometimes accuse Jesus and the Apostle Paul of being too demanding. Jesus can't be saying that. He can't be calling me to this. I think that's just further proof that we sometimes love our idols, love ourselves more than we actually love Jesus. Calvin once said that the human heart is a factory of idols. I think that's true. The human heart is a factory of idols. This is because, by the way, idols are anything that's more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart more than Jesus. Anything you seek to give you, what only Jesus can give you. These are our idols. Last week, again, we we saw that Jesus commended childlike faith. Come to him with empty hands. We can't hold on to our pet idols and then come to Jesus. You have to put our gods away. That's what we have to do. Whether they are possessions or positions or power or a person or our passions. If you're a non-Christian here this morning, you need to know that becoming a Christian will cost you something. You may have heard from TV evangelists and even well-meaning Christians, you know, trying to woo you to the Christian life because of all of its benefits and promises, and that is well and good. But you need to also know that Jesus demands your very life. He demands repentance. He demands allegiance. There is a cost. You must make him your master, not just grab a ticket out of hell and carry on with your life. Here at Faith Church, we, we'd urge you, in light of a story like this, to move slowly, to consider carefully, to count the cost. Becoming a Christian is more than just, oh, yeah, Jesus is real and died for sins. It is a wholehearted allegiance 
and devotion to Jesus alone. So if you're a non-Christian here this morning, you're so welcome, by the way. But here's a somewhat hard teaching that's coming straight out of this passage. Would you count the cost of following Jesus? My friend Mike counted the cost. I met him when he was 19 years old. He was a Michigan State student. I was doing campus ministry. Jenny and I were both doing this. And he was a part of our ministry relationally and connected. Um, but for three years, he was around us and he was saying all the right things and, and doing all the right things. And it seemed like, hey, this guy's a Christian. I mean, why is it Mike a Christian? He's saying he's not a Christian, but it seems like he's a Christian. And that's because myself and maybe other leaders had a pretty anemic view of what it means to be a Christian. <laughs> and then maybe three or four years later, just because he went before he went to medical school, he became a Christian, and he said he was a Christian. And the elders in the congregation in East Lansing, Michigan, affirmed his confession of faith, and we baptized him. And he's now an anesthesiologist in the Cincinnati area, and he's got three beautiful girls, and he's still a Christian. It stuck because he began the right way, and he continued the right way. He continued to come to Jesus with empty hands. This means something for Christian evangelism. No doubt we should explain the good news of Jesus and immediately call for repentance and faith. But in our attempt to woo non-Christians to Christ, do we include what Jesus includes here? You know, modern church growth experts would criticize Jesus. They would slam Jesus. Jesus, don't make it harder for them. You're being too strict. You're being too harsh. Woo them. Jesus. Maybe we should take our evangelistic cues from Jesus. So when we share the good news of Jesus, it is good news. We should woo them, but we should also warn them. Jesus says, drop everything and follow me. Let's plug that into our evangelism. It's not just simple intellectual assent to Jesus. It's not just saying the sinner's prayer or walking down some aisle. I'm not saying God can't use those things. He has, but it's what you do after the prayer and after that walk that Jesus is especially interested in because that is a demonstration of where your heart is truly at. Jesus is interested in actually, in people actually following him and forsaking all to do so. Friends, do we really, truly functionally, practically love Jesus more than everything else. This isn't a one-time decision. It's a daily decision, right? Christian, uh, Christians are called by God to kind of a, the same forceful smashing of idols that we did when we became a Christian. We're called to that same sort of smashing, that same sort of intensity. And there's a cost to this. It's not easy right? So this is the cost. What is the prize? Let's turn our attention to the back half of our passage, the prize of discipleship. Look at verses 23 through 31. So the rich young ruler, he walks away from eternal life because he was self-sufficient like an adult, not dependent like a child. And so as you would imagine, this story kind of raises an alarming question. How can an adult stop being an adult and be more like a child? And Jesus's answer that we're about to get to is it's a miracle, and it's a miracle that only God can perform. You know, like many other times after an encounter with the crowds, Jesus has kind of this private tutorial with his disciples on the same topic. 
And he says here how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, you have to understand how the disciples would have received this. They likely had the, the common, uh, held the common beliefs of their time, which was that wealth was a sign of God's favor. If anyone was in the kingdom, it was the wealthy. And not only were the rich blessed by God, the rich had many advantages. I mean, from a human perspective, it was easier to live lives which pleased God. They don't have the same fears and anxieties which plagued the poor. They had time on their hands to spend on religious activities and learning. They had servants to take care of the kids and clean the house. They could take extra Sunday school classes, you know. They could have more time to serve in the synagogue. The disciples were confused. What, what are you talking about, Jesus? What are you saying? But again, Jesus is still most interested in people's hearts. He knows of the danger of idolatry. Elsewhere, this is Matthew chapter 6, he says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. One of the greatest disadvantages to being wealthy is what it can do to our souls. We can become so attached to our riches. We can become so dependent on them that we've forgotten what childlike dependence on God looks like. The disciples are so shocked by this. Look at verse 24. They're just, they're like, what are you talking about, Jesus? You know, and then in verse 25, he doubles down. You know, he says that it's more likely for a 1,000 pound camel to get through a hole meant for a tiny thread than for a rich person to get in the kingdom of God. Now the disciples, notice verse 26, they are super shocked. I mean, they have no categories, right? You can picture them just kind of looking at each other and like, Eyes big, bulging. And this question makes sense. Jesus, how can anyone be saved? This is true. Bingo. <laughs> Jesus has expertly led them to this moment of recognition. So far, so far, what has Jesus taught? He has taught his disciples the significance of, of having true knowledge of God, of having true knowledge of themselves. This is in his interaction with the rich young ruler. Now he shows them, directly them, True knowledge, a true knowledge of grace. What man could never do for himself, God can do. Look at verse 27. Just a special verse in our passage. Looking at them, Jesus said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. What an astonishing little verse to drop in his teaching right here, right? What is Jesus saying? He's saying that only God can give us eternal life. Only God can give us the hearts to let go of those idols. You can't just go from being adult-like to being childlike. You can't just kind of get yourself saved. The rich young ruler couldn't conjure up within himself enough childlike dependence. Nothing he could do could fit him through that needle. So salvation and eternal life and Jesus' kingdom, these are all gifts. Friends, we don't grab at them. We don't procure them with our deeds. We don't secure them with more deeds. We only receive them with empty hands. Brothers and sisters, I want you to be encouraged this morning because in this truth, you know just how much God is for you and God loves you. Salvation is a work of God, not a work of man. It's entirely a miracle. And miracles happen to be no problem for God. 
He brought new life into this world at the moment of creation. He has no problem bringing new spiritual life into a soul that lacks childlike trust. And so if you're a Christian, this is precisely what he has done for you. He has taken you from death to life, from darkness to light. He has helped you and is helping you to crush those idols. And so today, let me invite you to rejoice as you look, as you put your eyes on verse 27. With man, it is impossible, but with, not with God, because all things are possible with God. Peter's response is very understandable in verse 28. He's basically saying, hey, Jesus, um, we don't have a lot of money or things, but we've left everything to follow you. Are we okay? Are we in? Are we good with you? And Jesus' response, starting in verse 29, I think contains some of the greatest words of encouragement found in the Gospels. And I want you to feel encouraged by these words as well. Look at what he says, starting in verse 29. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Here's the prize, friends. Ultimately, there's nothing you can lose on earth that will exceed what you will gain through Christ. Following Jesus may require real earthly loss. You might lose your reputation. You might lose your job and as a result, your money. You might lose some friends and your family. But look at what you gain. Not only in heaven, but now, according to verse 30. I really like Jesus' math here. He doesn't say you'll get 100% more. He says you're going to get 100-fold. That's amazing, isn't it? Jesus talking about a two-part miracle. The first is the miracle of new birth. The second is the miracle of a new family. Christians who are new creations form this new community in Christ that's called the church. The first miracle leads to the second miracle. How many years have I lived now away from my family, I wonder? My mom and my sister and her family, my dad passed away many years ago. It's been maybe 20 years, 20 or more years since I've been with them. We're a very close family. But I've been a part of four churches now, the wider family of God. And within this family, I've connected with people who have become like fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and children to me. Biological connection is, is big. We talked about that last week. But friends, the fellowship that we share in Christ is even deeper. It's even more profound. And notice it's not only Christian relationships that he highlights here, but things. Notice it says, receives a hundred times more in houses and fields. What does he mean by that? I think he's talking about actual things, actual stuff. As Christians, we share our stuff, our homes, our resources, our money, our time with other brothers and sisters, don't we? And this is a mark, by the way, of the early church. You see this in Acts chapter 2, and it should be true of us today as well. You may lose some of your stuff if you follow Jesus, but there will be other stuff you can use and enjoy as you're part of the body of Christ. You might lose your family, 
There are hundreds of families who will become yours in the church. And so there's this practical reality here that Jesus promises that just I find so encouraging. Yes, persecutions are also promised. Notice verse 30. But through the church, Jesus is saying, God will take care of you. Isn't that great? And we've got a hundred, hundred examples of this in this church. In the last verse, notice verse 31, Jesus teaches that it is the inconspicuous Christian, the one barely recognized in this life. He or she will be the one to receive the greatest honor from God. The prize, of course, is God's affirmation. It's the affirmation that we will either feel or not feel for a million years into the future. And Jesus is saying the one who loses all for Jesus, who is last in this world, who embraces the cross-shaped life, in the end, he will be first. Of course, the question remains for you and me, do we trust these words from Jesus? Do you believe these promises and that we have and will have this prize? David Livingston, he's the great Christian explorer, he once said that, quote, one of the most stubborn facts of history is that Christ is a gentleman and always keeps his word. So you look at these verses, both the cost as well as the prize. Do you believe Jesus' words? Down through the ages, millions of Christians would testify to how these very promises of provision have come true in their lives. Yes, he's provided all these different things and all these different people and families for me. There are Christians, I've already mentioned, but there's Christians in our church who would say, yes, these words from Jesus are true. Listen, I I was abandoned by my mom and dad when I became a Christian, but you took me in. I had a spouse that left me, but you took me in. You took me in. And I want you to notice, friends, this promise of a new family and new things, it extends beyond this age. It extends into the age to come. In eternity, a trillion years from today, we will continue to enjoy the provision of fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and even material things, all part of the prize. But here's where I want to land. Even more than people and possessions, as important as those things are, there is a greater prize Jesus speaks of here. Look at verse 29. Truly, I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields. Here it is, for my sake, for my sake. Friends, it is gain to have Jesus. He is the ultimate treasure, isn't he? More than even the people of God, more than even the possessions that we can share amongst the people of God. Jesus is our greatest treasure. Why is he our greatest treasure? Well, before the foundation of the world, he, colluding with the rest of the Trinity, chose you, Christian. Before the foundation of the world, he put his love on you. And he had a plan, a destiny for you to be his child, to be holy and blameless. And then in time, 
in time, he not only called you, but before he called you, in time, he first sent his son Jesus to take on flesh, to take on the full gamut of humanity, to walk towards the cross. This is for you and for me, Christian. And then Jesus not only died a brutal death to pay the penalty for our sins, but then he was raised to new life, and now he's sitting at the right hand of God in power and authority. And there's coming a day when he's going to come back and he's going to come back to rule and reign forever and ever. Amen. Jesus is our greatest treasure. You can gain all the world. You can have all of heaven, all of God's people, all of God's bountiful provisions and not have Christ. And you would be lost and empty Listen, friends, heaven is heaven only because Jesus is there. And so today and every day, Christian, Jesus is your greatest treasure. There is nothing, there is no one more precious or more interesting or more powerful or more glorious or more lovely for you to enjoy. What would you give up to have him? Would you give up wealth and a comfortable life? Would you give up hope for a marriage and children? Would you give up closeness with your biological family or a soaring, successful career? Would you give up even a successful ministry in order to gain Christ? What would you be willing to give up for Jesus? Listen to Spurgeon, quote, I bear my testimony that there is no joy to be found in all this world like that of sweet communion with Jesus. I would barter all else there is of heaven for that. Indeed, that is heaven. As for the harps of gold and the streets like clear glass and the songs of seraphs and the shouts of even the redeemed, one could very well give up all of these, count them as a drop in a bucket, if we might forever live in fellowship and communion with Jesus. Oh, I hope that we can say that together today. I don't know about you, but I grew up thinking that Christianity is all about keeping the rules, making sure my external life was squeaky clean. I heard the call of Christ as the need for, a bad, for bad people to become good people. But then I became a Christian, and I had a new perspective. You see, the gospel isn't good advice. It's good news. The gospel isn't about bad people becoming good. It's about dead people becoming alive. Alive to gaining Jesus. So, so we don't get caught up in the things we may give up for Jesus because they pale in comparison to all that we've gained through him. And so when Jesus asks you and asks me to deny ourselves or to smash our idols or deal honestly with our sin, it is always to get something better, longer lasting, and more satisfying. We put to death the things that would kill our joy because they lead us away from Christ, who is our chief joy. So yes, there is a cost, and you have to pay it. But look at what you gain. And most importantly, look at who you gain. Jesus is the priceless treasure worth losing all to gain. Amen. Let's take a moment uh, to silently reflect on this passage and prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper.